Well, I enjoyed the uh, songs, Judson, about heaven. I enjoy singing songs about heaven. We need to do that more often. Um, this morning I'm going to be speaking, uh, taking an Old Testament character and going to be speaking about the covetousness of Ahab and how he coveted. What he um, kind of forgot, I believe, is that God's word never becomes obsolete. King Ahab, he thought that he could disregard one of God's laws that was established by God for the nation of Israel during the time of Moses. And that was the law of land ownership. That was, it was kind of particularly irksome to him that uh, someone else had some land that he wanted. So King Ahab, he just decided that he was going to disregard that, that law and uh, not pay any attention to it. And in Leviticus, just want to talk a little bit about that law. In Leviticus 25, verse 23, it plainly says that the land which God had given them was not to be sold. It was God's land. And Joshua, he had divided um, the land up between the 12 tribes and the families. And there were, there were cases where the land was maybe leased for a period of time uh, within the family or within the tribe. Or it was offered to the nearest kinsman, at, as uh, Leviticus 25 talks about how you can offer it to the nearest kinsman. And if the nearest kinsman didn't want it, then the land could be purchased with the understanding that it would revert back to the original owner's family every 50 year with, at, during the year of Jubilee. So that's a little bit of background about this uh, as far as how the land ownership worked during that time. And the Israelites, they understood that they were, they, they were but tenants of the land and they weren't independent owners of the parcel of the land and not the independent owners of that land. They, they still understood that it was God's land. And Numbers 36.7 explains how the, the land could move from father to father within their specific tribes. And the land, even at one time, it's mentioned how one father, he had all daughters and um, he didn't have any sons to keep it in the family. So it was uh, uh, permissible that the land could go to the daughters you know, and, and they're you know, keeping the family line that way. But ultimately, though, it was God's land with the tribes and the families. They, they were the caretakers and the stewards of that land. So the story of how King Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard, it's, it's really one of the most cold-blooded, acts that we read of in the Bible. There, there's other cold-blooded acts in the Bible, but this is one of the more cold-blooded acts that, that, that came about in the Bible because it was Naboth was a God-fearing man that was executed because of the covetousness of a man who had authority and he was able to you know, get what he wanted. So to covet means to desire and crave that which belongs to another to desire and crave that which belongs to another. So to put the story in context, Elijah, the prophet, if you remember, he had just recently killed the prophets of Baal on the mountain after God had sent down fire from heaven, devoured the altar up. And, uh, and then remember how he sent a servant up on the hilltop and there was a cloud coming and he said, it's going to rain. It hadn't rained for a number of years. And uh, 
he took off running then. I, you know, they had killed the prophets, and I think it was about it was either four or five hundred prophets that were killed at that time of Baal. And uh, these were Queen Jezebel's prophets, and she was really mad and was looking for a way to lash out at Elijah, at, at Elijah's God. In fact, she had threatened Elijah's life to the point that he had fled to Mount Horeb, which was about 130 miles away. And there, you know, he had met God. But Elijah was on Mount Horeb at that time. And um, so that all happened in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. And then in chapter 20, it taught, in, in 1 Kings, it talks about how the Syrian army came in. And chapter 21 is the story where I want to pick up. And some, uh, some scholars, I guess, they think it's, um, it's chronologic, chronologically out of order. It should have been 18, 19, 21, 20, and then 22, but that's neither here nor, the, here nor there. But our story takes place in chapter 21. So as the king, Ahab, he had plenty of land available to him. He had vineyards, he had room to grow whatever he wanted to grow, whatever pleased him. But also, King Ahab was also well aware of his neighbor Naboth's productive vineyard, which was below his, in the valley just a little bit. It was, it was neighboring his property. And over time, he observed it. As, as he was observing this land, I think he began to envision the perfect spot for an herb garden. In his mind, he had, he had already made plans how, probably how the, he was going to construct the paths, how he was going to build maybe a terrace here and a terrace there. doesn't say this in the Bible, but I'm, he probably decided what herbs he was going to grow, what he would cultivate, and so on. And the more he thought about it, the more he wanted this land of Naboth's, even though, even though it was in someone else's name. And, and remember, he was the king. He was brought up, and he knew the laws of Israel. He knew that the land was supposed to stay in each family's name in the tribes. But he began to disregard God's law on the right of ownership, and he began to think, I think, more on how he could get around it and how he could possess this land in another way. And there was other viable options for him. He could have worked out a lease for a fair price, leaving Naboth and his descendants the option of having it again at the year of Jubilee. And, but he didn't want that. He wanted the land for his very own. He wanted to possess that land. I think covetousness begins that way. It begins with discontentment of what we have been blessed with. And it often includes envy with us resenting the fact that others have what we don't. So how do we fight off these feelings of discontentment and envy that are two warning signs of covetousness? I think the way we fight it off is we have to remind ourselves that God is the supplier of our needs and that our contentment is only found in, in God, in Him. And that it's only through our resting in God that we can be satisfied with what we have and, and secure in, in who we are. And we really have to trust God. It, there, there needs to be a level of trust with God. And then that brings contentment and rest. 
and discontentment and covetousness, it was played out way back in the Garden of Eden where Satan questioned Eve's contentment. Satan brought this question to her, how could she be happy when she was not allowed to eat the fruit from one of the trees in the garden? It placed a question in, in Eve's mind. And this discontentment in Eve caused Eve to switch her focus from what God had done for her to question why God had withheld certain things from her and her trust was broken in God at that point. And she became discontented and then she began to covet that which wasn't hers, the, the fruit of the tree. And, it, you know, it's, it's so easy to do, or the one or two things that we know we shouldn't have are so much more enticing than the hundreds of things that we've already been blessed with. We focus on those one or two things instead of being thankful for the things that we have. And Eve's sin is, is not just isolated to her, but it, it manifests itself in us if we let it. Because we too can be manipulated just by Satan, just like her, if we keep God out of our decision, out of our decision-making process. So it's, you know, it's really important that we leave God in our decision-making process. So to avoid the sin of covetousness, we need to be, I think, be constantly reviewing our motives with God in prayer, you know, seeking God in prayer. And we need to seek God's guidance through his word, the Bible, and to daily ask God to lead us by his spirit. You know, what should I do? Um, how should I do this? Or is this okay? And, you know, what do you think? And then go to the Bible and see what the Bible says. So King Ahab Continuing with the story here with King Ahab, he went to Naboth with a smile on his face, I believe, and kind of maybe with a neighborly greeting, and he probably complimented Naboth on his fine-looking vineyard and the good job he had done in keeping up his property, and then smooth as butter, I think Ahab slides in his offer of how he wanted to own Naboth's land, in exchange, and he said, in exchange that he would give him another vineyard of better value. You know, that, that seems like a, a liberal and a fair enough exchange, but I'm not sure where this other vineyard would have been, uh, where, where Naboth or where King Ahab was going to get this other vineyard or where it would have come from. But let's just pause there for a, a second and think what uh, might have been going through Naboth's mind when he got this offer. And I think only someone that's farmed their family farm, one that's been in the family for multiple generations, can probably begin to understand what Naboth was feeling at that time when, when King Ahab made that offer to him. And I'm surmising now, but Naboth probably remembered how what his father and his grandfather had done to uh, improve the land He'd probably heard stories from them how his great-great-great-grandfather had improved the property by filling in maybe this gully over here and moved this boulder from here to there, build a terrace here or whatever. And his, gener his grandfathers, his father's sweat and their footsteps, they, they'd walked every inch of, this, of the land that Naboth now farmed, his vineyard. 
And then another thought I think probably went through Naboth's mind. Hadn't God commanded them as Israelites to never sell their family inheritance of land that they were supposed to be caretakers of? And in fact, his own sons were even now planning what they could do with their family land because he had sons, the Bible tells us later on. We'll talk about that. But, and I think his sons were probably planning what they could do with the, the family land and the, and the future. So all these thoughts, I think, were flashing through uh, Naboth's mind as, as he was considering this offer that King Ahab had given to him. And he knew without a doubt that he would be willing to forfeit his life before he would sell his heritage and compromise one of God's laws. And his answer, I think, probably came out rather bluntly, but he said, I cannot and furthermore will not do this transaction and sin against God and sell my inheritance from my father to you. And of course, um, you know, this didn't please Ahab at all, but you know, what else could he do at this point? So he went home and he arrived home, I think, with a scowl on his face. And, you know, he, he was just really bitterly disappointed that all his dreams of developing Naboth's fields into an herb garden, you know, that they weren't going to come to fruition. You know, he, he had been thinking about this, I think, for a long time. So he told his wife and his children what had happened that day. And then he sulkily went to his bedroom, kind of like a spoiled child. And he lay down in his bed and, and he just pouted. He just, uh, he was so upset that he, he could, that he couldn't get what he planned that he couldn't even eat. He was really upset and just, just lay in bed and pouted. And remember that this is the king, the king of Israel. He had all the resources of the kingdom at his disposal. The king could pretty much do what he wanted to do for the most part. So Jezebel's wife, she, she now enters the picture. And like a mother, she came into his bedroom or where he was laying. Like a mother would come into a child's room, she comes in and she scolds him for his childish behavior. Because where she came from, as a Phoenician princess, she, she, came, she was a Phoenician princess, and she was used to seeing the king get what he desired. Uh, oftentimes, probably deceitfulness, malicious intent, didn't matter. His will, his desire was his to have at whatever cost. So she told her husband, the king, you know, don't, don't fret, I'll, I'll take care of it so you will still get your vineyards. And um, I'm not sure what all went in between that uh, conversation, but she told him to, you know, to get up and go eat. And I think she probably asked, said something like, with, with your permission, I'll give this insubordinate peasant what he deserves. So the next morning, the queen is up and at it. She had her royal scribes write out the king's. It wasn't necessarily the king writing it. It was Queen Jezebel uh, heading it up. But she had the royal scribes write out the king's command, and the letter had, had instructions on it. And they were addressed to the leaders of Naboth's community, which was Jezreel. And then the letter was stamped with the king's seal, and probably had the king's courier deliver it. And the wheels of motion were uh, set in motion for the doom of Naboth. 
So when the leaders of the town of Jezreel, they got this letter from the king, or from Jezebel, and they also, we know, they joined into the plot. They, they, were, they were conspirators with her, and they followed the instructions of the letter by first proclaiming a fast for the town. And the Bible doesn't say what, the, what reason they gave for declaring a fast, but from the accusations that were later brought up, the leaders, I think, might have said something like this. They might have addressed the town with, we've incurred the wrath of God as our forefathers did when Achan disobeyed God and buried silver and raiments, taken as spoil. And we must find out who it is who sinned and brought this wrath on us. They, they, they had some excuse for bringing everyone together. But at any rate, as a fast was declared for the town and a meeting was called. And when Naboth came to the meeting, he was set at a place of honor among the people. It says that he was supposed to be set at a place of honor. And you have to wonder at this point if Naboth you know, wasn't becoming a little bit suspicious that something fishy was going on, especially since he had just recently um, refused to sell his property to the king. So as the meeting continued, two evil men, they rose up in the presence of the people and they swore that they had heard Naboth blaspheme God and also the king. So there was two, two people, which wasn't a good thing when you had two witnesses. So this was a serious accusation and to blaspheme means that you denied the attributes that should be given to God. That was also a serious thing, to blaspheme against God and also the king. It was like two, two strikes against you. And the Bible doesn't say it, but I'm sure that Naboth probably denied it. And it, he probably in vain, well, I know it was in vain, but he protested of his innocence. And he probably appealed to the crowd as his neighbors and as his friends to look at his blameless and his upright life as they, they had, the people in the crowd in the town there, they had known him since he was a child. And why believe these two evil men who were known to be evil? But his protests, they were to no avail, and they didn't listen because we know that the leaders had already sold out to be a part of the conspiracy to condemn Naboth. And likely... The excuse in the leaders of Jezreel's mind was, hadn't the king commanded them to, uh, to do this? And I just had to imagine uh, how Naboth felt as he was carried by the now inflamed mob out of the city gates to the stoning grounds. You know, these men, they had been probably his schoolmates, his friends, his neighbors, probably his I'm sure they were his fellow businessmen. He probably thought, you know, are they really going to stone me? And then he realized that, you know, yes, these guys, you know, they're serious. And, you know, he probably thought, is this a joke? Are they, is this something they're playing a joke on me? Is it a dream, perhaps? And he realized that, yes, these, these men are serious. And he looks for the last time as they're carrying him, probably at the, I don't know if he passed his fields, but he looked at the fields that he's, he's labored in. The sun that 
had often beat on his back was still there, but now instead of blistering his back, um, it now was a comfort. For the last time, he looks at the faces he loved, his wife, his children, his sons, as others prepared to stone him. And he probably thought, why? You know, why must I die? And he probably looked up into heaven, where is your mercy, Lord? Have you forgotten me, God? Is this the way I'm to be rewarded for keeping your laws? Byron mentioned in the devotions, obedience doesn't always result in a full boat. His boat was empty. Uh, He was obedient, but he didn't get a full boatload of fishes. Whatever his thoughts were, they were quickly stopped, you know, as the blows from the rocks struck him and as his life faded into eternity. 2 Kings 9.26 tells us that not only he, but his sons were also stoned. So um, it doesn't go into the detail that in 1 Kings, but, but his sons were also evidently stoned at that time. So King Ahab now could take what he had coveted. You know, he wanted uh, Naboth's vineyard. He desired it, and he got it. Or could he get it? We'll find, uh, I'm going to turn to 1 Kings 21, 16 at this time, and, or read the first 16 verses. 1 Kings 21, verses 1 to 16. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it. Or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my father unto thee. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my father. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? And he he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? I think probably with scorn. Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And so she wrote letters in Ahab's name, and sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in the city, dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letter, saying, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth on high among the people, and set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him, that he may die. And here's where we're going to pick up with the story. And the men of the city, and the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were with the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them. 
They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab, that Ahab arose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession. Okay, the story's not finished there, but um, there's more to how um, things end for King Ahab, but that's uh, another story for another time, because God saw, and it angered God, it made God angry. And, and there's, like I said, there's more to that story there, but I'm going to stop there as far as for this morning. Covetousness is a serious sin, and we need to recognize it as sin. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 to 11 tells us that we're not to keep company with a brother that is involved in sin, and covetousness is mentioned along with other, other sins in 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. There's fornicators that are mentioned, idolaters, drunkards, those that are abusive and cheat people, and also people that are covetousness. covetousness. You know, it, it can be easy and it can be convenient to make excuses for people that are involved in these sins. And specifically, I'm thinking of covetousness this morning. But when we as Christian, when we as a Christian brotherhood overlook these sins, such as people that covet, it dims our light that shines through us to the world around us, and it confuses and distorts how Jesus is presented to the world around us when they see covetousness within us. You know, people do see Jesus through our actions, and when they see covetousness in us, it's like kind of like a flashing neon light to them. I mean, they, they, they pick it up right away. Covetousness doesn't one day just show up in our lives. It's not something that, oh, I'm being covet, I'm coveting something. It's it's kind of incubated in our very being by what we feed on, the things that we feed on. You know, I, I like to think for King Ahab, it was a process for King Ahab. What we put into our minds is it's digested on a daily basis. And it's uh, what we put into our mind is based off of what we read and what we watch and what we hear. And we might think those things are insignificant, but over time it, it does affect us and it can affect us in the wrong way. Jesus said in Mark 7 verses 20 to 23, anything that we put into our minds that is anti-God principles, it will affect us. And we, we have to separate the difference. 
I want to read that there in Mark 7, um, uh, verses 20 to 23. That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the man. So like I said, anything that we put in our minds that is anti-God type principles, they, they will affect us. And, and so we have to separate those, uh, those differences. To live righteously, we instead, we need to fill our minds with those things that are true, honest, pure, lovely, and of good report, like Philippians 4.8 says. And if we do that, covetousness won't be a problem for us if we fill our minds with the right things. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for being with us. Pray that you would help us to root out covetousness if it's in our lives, that you would help us to uh, root out discontentment and envy that, that leads to covetousness. Pray that you would help us to um, rest in you and that we would trust and be content in you. Just pray that you would be with us and just guide us and lead us. Praise in your name. Amen.